Hi, my name is Eloise, and welcome to the Take Me to the World Musical Theater Podcast, a podcast where I talk about musicals. On this episode, I'm going to be talking about the musical Love Never Dies, and so I will be spoiling that show, and I will also be spoiling The Phantom of the Opera. If you haven't seen these musicals and you don't want any spoilers, please make sure to watch them first. There are film stage productions of both of these musicals, and The Phantom of the Opera also had a movie adaptation back in, I think, 2004. On my blog, takemetotheworld.com, there is a podcast category at the top of the page. You can click that and go to past episodes for this show. Uh, if you click on each episode, you'll be able to find resources. So on, for this episode, I would link to where you can watch these movies, where you can listen to the cast album, get tickets if it's possible. Right now, as of this recording, coronavirus is going on. So theaters, including Broadway, the West End, they're all closed. So right now you won't be able to watch any of these shows, you know, on stage, but hopefully eventually you can at some point. Uh, you can also download past episodes if you haven't heard other ones and or you want to listen to them again. It was very uh, all over the place because I'm kind of all over the place right now. Uh, I'm not a musical theater expert. I'm just an enthusiast, so opinions are my own. And listener discretion is advised because sometimes I swear because I get really excited about a musical. Sometimes I swear because I get really angry about a musical. Now, if you listen to my last episode, you'll notice at the end I said the next episode is going to be about spoilers. But I lied because I'm a fucking dumbass. I actually had an episode on spoilers that I recorded and it was like all ready to go. I just needed to like upload it to my podcast hosting site. But my computer broke down and the episode got lost forever, which is totally my fault because I had it saved on the computer and I should have saved it on a flash drive or something else. So... And because of coronavir coronavirus going on right now, um, I can't exactly go get my computer fixed. And it's also a 10-year-old MacBook, so, you know, it's kind of lasted a really long time. I don't know if there's going to be anything they can do it. So I'm recording this with different equipment than I normally do, which is why it probably sounds different. And, um, yeah, so that's why it sounds different. That's why this episode isn't about spoilers. Am I going to do an episode on spoilers? Yeah, probably eventually. But the thing is, Andrew Lloyd Webber has been showcasing some of his musicals for free on YouTube. Now, Andrew Lloyd Webber is a really famous musical theater composer, and he's been showcasing them for free because of the quarantine. So for the past four Fridays so far, he's been releasing a professionally recorded production of one of his stage musicals, leaving it up for 24 to 48 hours, depending on where you live. So it started with Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, which I missed because I didn't know about the time limit. Then there was Jesus Christ Superstar, which they aired on Good Friday, so kudos to them for their marketing. And then they did the Fan of the Opera last week. Or the week before. And then last week, it was Love Never Dies. So Love Never Dies is a sequel to the Phantom of the Opera, and when I watched it, I was like, okay, I gotta make an episode about this. Now, the other three musicals, aside from Love Never Dies, are ones I've seen before, both on stage and in film. And I was, in high school, I was in a production of Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, and The Fan of the Opera was the first musical I ever saw on stage when I was, like, ten. So those two musicals are kind of, like, a special place in my heart, and I've seen Jesus Christ Superstar, I've seen the movie, I've seen live performance tour of it. So, love both of the, or all three of those shows. But Love Never Dies, oh, sorry, Sorry about that. Um, this recorder that I'm using does not have any kind of editing function, possibly, so uh, apologies in advance for that. I can't go back and change stuff, which I could do when I was using GarageBand on my MacBook, 
so frustrated right now. And there's really nothing I can do. But anyways, moving on. Love Never Dies. It's a sequel to The Phantom of the Opera. And I knew it was a sequel, and I'd never seen it. And I was like, okay, you know, these musicals are up for free. I kind of want to watch this. Now, just a quick note in this episode, I'm going to be referring to the character of the Phantom by his real name, Eric, just to make it clear when I'm talking between the character and the musical or any other adaptations of the Phantom of the Opera. So Andrew Lloyd Webber, he's had a very successful career, but there's a lot of people or, you know, some people in the theater world who can get a little bit snobby and kind of razz on his work. For the shows of his I've seen, I kind of get it because they're often very over the top, they're melodramatic, they're focuses on big musical swells to showcase emotion. You know, there's not a lot of subtlety all the time in his shows. It's very melodramatic, very over top for a lot of them. And his songs can be great, but there can be kind of a simplicity to them, which can get a little bit stale on repeat. Now, this isn't everybody's opinion all the time. And, you know, they're like, like I said, I love Phantom of the Opera, love Jesus Christ Superstar, I think that's probably one of his best shows. Like, musically speaking, it's definitely his most interesting to me. But there's a lot of his shows that I haven't seen either, so I can't say that definitively. Um, You know, and I'm not shitting on Andrew Lloyd Webber or, you know, shitting on you if Andrew Lloyd Webber is your favorite theater composer. Because the guy is worth millions a lot of money. Like, his shows have been successful. Cats was one of the longest-running musicals of all time. Band of the Opera is currently the longest-running musical on Broadway. It's been playing since 1988, I think. And it's been... It's the second-longest-running musical in the West End, and I think third overall. So, you know, his shows have done pretty good. And for myself, I'm really glad that Andrew Lloyd Webber's musical Band of the Opera was the first show that I got to see as a kid on stage. Because there's something about the Phantom, the sets, the costumes, the effects, the music, like it's just a very lavish production and it kind of sucked me into the theater world. If, say, I'd seen a show like The Last Five Years by Jason Robert Brown, a musical about a struggling relationship between two characters, I probably wouldn't have been that interested at the age of 10 years old. So today I'm going to be talking about Love Never Dies. Now, It's a lesser-known musical. Some might say it's a flop, but that kind of depends on who you ask. Um, This musical's never had a Broadway run, but it's had some international productions in places like London and Australia. And it was the Melbourne or Melbourne production of this show that got recorded and aired on YouTube. And this is the same version you can buy or rent if you want as well. Now, I didn't know much about this musical, aside from the fact that it was a sequel to The Phantom of the Opera, and it was loosely based on a book called The Phantom of Manhattan. Uh, I knew some people didn't like it, I knew other people liked it, you know, but I kind of thought, okay, the quarantine's on, Andrew Lloyd Webber's putting up some of his musicals for free on YouTube, you know, what else am I gonna do? When else am I gonna get a chance to see this show? You know, I might not, and... For me, it was kind of like a no-brainer. Like, why am I not going to watch this? I kind of wanted to see, is this going to be, like, really bad? Like, am I going to get angry the way I did with Shout the Mod Musical? Which is still the worst episode. Well, the worst musical I've ever seen. And the worst episode I've ever done, um, just recording-wise, because I was so angry whenever I talked about that musical that I had to go back and re-record it over and over again. 
and it was very frustrating. So I wanted to see was Love Never Dies going to be like that or was it just going to be kind of bad but in a guilty pleasure way, like how people watch a movie like The Room, or was it actually going to be like pretty decent? Like, so The Phantom of the Opera, the musical, is based on the novel La Phantom de l'Opera by Gaston Leroux, or Leroux, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. It's a French novel, if you couldn't tell from the title, which was published in 1910. I love the musical version of The Phantom of the Opera, and I've also seen the 1925 silent film with Lon Chaney, and I do remember reading an English translated version of La Phantom de l'Opera sometime in junior high. I don't remember much about it, but I recall it was kind of like an easy romance novel read. That's not a bad thing, it's just the kind of book, um, you know, that's like an easy beach read, except it's about a phantom in a Paris opera house. So, by contrast, you know, after seeing Le Mis, the musical, I was like, I'm going to read the novel that it's based on by Victor Hugo, and the English version of the novel is 1400 pages, and I was 12 years old, and I started reading it, and I was like, uh, this is really hard, and I stopped. So, Phantom of the Opera was like, you know, maybe a couple days to read through, but not very hard. So, I don't remember much about the novel now. I do know that there's some stuff in the novel that doesn't happen in the musical, you know, because adaptations and things like that. But I do know that there was not a sequel written by Gaston Leroux. He passed away and, you know, 89 years after the original novel was published, an author named Frederick Forsyth wrote the sequel, The Phantom of Manhattan. Now, I want to state that I have not read The Phantom of Manhattan, so I don't know how much of Love Never Dies is exactly like the novel and how much has changed or anything like that, but I do know that Love Never Dies is based off this book. So, for the musical Love Never Dies, it takes place in Coney Island, New York in 1905. Now, the show says this is 10 years later from when The Phantom is set. I've never been very good at math, or maths, as they say across the pond, but The Phantom of the Opera, I know, kind of takes place around 1881 in Paris. So I was like, well, this doesn't add up. What's happening? So right off the bat, I was already confused. And I have to say, I'm very glad that this was on YouTube, because I could pause it, I could stop, and I could search. If I'd been watching this live on a show, you know, the question of what the hell are they talking about, what's going on, would probably be running through my mind throughout the show and me being like, am I crazy? Does Does the Phantom of the Opera take place in 1881? Maybe it takes place in 1895. What if I was wrong the entire time? And then, you know, your wheels keep spinning and all of a sudden you're just completely distracted. So I stopped the show and I was like, when does the Phantom take place, Google? And a quick search of Love Never Dies without trying to spoil the show for myself because I didn't want to read major plot points. I came across people saying there was, you need to have a lot of suspension of disbelief for this musical. You know, it's not, it's the same characters in name, but you almost need to see the characters as being separate from the Phantom of the Opera, you know? So because of this, Love Never Dies is interesting. The premise is interesting. The story is kind of interesting, but because it's already attached to developed characters and a show, it just means that people are going to have an expectation of said characters if they've already seen the Phantom of the Opera. Now, if you've never seen the Phantom of the Opera and you watch Love Never Dies first, and I'm sorry, I'm going to be spoiling Fan of the Opera if you want to go back and watch that, but I already gave you that spoiler at the beginning. Um, maybe you'd have a different experience with this show than somebody like myself who's watched The Phantom of the Opera first and knows it fairly well. But I'm kind of glad that I could Google this because, you know, 
it was sort of like suspension of disbelief. Okay, whatever. The timeline isn't really exact, but who cares? Let's just go with it. So in Love Never Dies, Erica's alive, and he operates a freak show slash sideshow attraction on Coney Island, something that would have been pretty popular at that time. Coney Island was known for, you know, it, like it's known for its midway, but it was also known for, you know, having like freak shows and, you know, fortune tellers and kind of all that sort of stuff. So Eric writes to Christine Daae under the guise of Oscar Hammerstein I to have Christine come see Hammerstein's new theater. Now, Hammerstein was a real-life business owner, producer, and he opened several opera houses in his lifetime. He died in 1919. So this is a pretty, like, believable kind of thing. It's not like they had to make up a character. Oscar Hammerstein was a real person. He was involved in opera and some other stuff. And fun fact, you probably, if you love musicals, you probably already know this, but if you don't, his grandson, Oscar Hammerstein II, became a very famous lyricist for musicals like Oklahoma, The King and I, and The Sound of Music, to name a few. So, in Love Never Dies, Christine and Raoul are married, and they have a 10-year-old son named Gavrat. Now, side note, every time I said the name Gavrat, I kept thinking of Gavroche from Les Mis, and then in my head I'd sing, and I apologize for this very horrible English accent, but it was the London cast recording of the show that I listened to growing up. How do you do my name's Gavroche? Every freaking time. And I was like, like, I know it's based on a novel, so it's not Andrew Lloyd Webber, it's probably the character's name in the novel, but... I was kind of like, oh my god, why couldn't they just call this kid Francois or Jean or Claude or some other French name? Why did it have to be Gavrat? Because seriously, it's like, I just keep thinking the kid from Les Mis, and it just was very distracting. Now, the character of Raoul in Love Never Dies is very different from the character in The Phantom of the Opera. Now, in The Phantom of the Opera, I kind of find Raoul, depending on the production you see, he can be sort of sweet, but kind of a bit... Uh, ab- I wouldn't even say obtuse, but basically he just doesn't believe Christine when she's like, oh my god, there's a phantom. He's like, no, what are you doing, you silly little girl? But, you know, of course it was 18-something and women can't think for themselves sort of thing. So, you know, that's probably sort of the attitude a lot of guys might have had back in the time. Um, But, you know, you can tell that he cares about Christine. He wants her to be happy and they've known each other since childhood or they, they knew each other from childhood, and then they re-meet during the Phantom of the Opera timeline. So, you know, in, in there, he's, you know, maybe he's a bit of a jerk, but not, like, a complete asshole. And Love Never Dies, Raul is a fucking asshole. He's an angry drunk with a gambling problem. He doesn't show any affection to his son or wife. Like, there's a lot of scenes in Love Never Dies of Gavrat being like, Father, look what I did, and his dad being like, Go piss off, Gavrat. I don't care. I need to have my shot of whiskey. You know, it doesn't exactly say like that. But, you know, that's kind of the idea. He's a fucking asshole in this show. They really, really make him to be uh, the bad guy, I guess you could say. Now, the family is in debt due to rivals gambling. So that's why Christine has agreed to come to New York to sing. Because they need money to pay off the debts. And it's kind of implied that Christine doesn't perform much anymore since her son was born. So this whole thing is seen as this huge event when they land in New York, when their ship comes in, because it's 1905 and, you know, planes aren't a thing. But when their ship comes in, there's, you know, news reporters being like, Christine, how do you feel? And what are you going to do? And, you know, they're talking, trying to talk to the son. And Raul's like, don't talk to my son, which I get because, you know, kid's 10. Why why are you going to, what are you going to ask the kid? 
they they ask him some question and he's like, I'm really excited to come to Coney Island. So, you know, I so I wanna just take a second again and say this is kind of an interesting premise for a musical, but I I do want to point out that at the end of the Phantom of the Opera, they kind of imply that the story's over. Now they don't say or sing anything definitive. There isn't like a and the Phantom is dead and then you see like a corpse or something like that. You know, Meg finds the mask and the phantoms disappeared. But I think overall, you know, there's sort of a good conclusion. There's, you know, even though you don't know what happens to the phantom, you can kind of figure out that he has parted ways with Christine. Christine and Raoul have gone off and fallen in love and probably gotten married because they're supposed to get engaged at some point. And, you know, the end. There's a bit of a mystery of, like, what happened to Eric? But sometimes that's a good thing. You know, it makes it better because you can kind of make up your own thing. So Love Never Dies is, I guess, what this one author kind of decided the characters would do after the show. And it's interesting, but it's definitely not what I would have pictured. But again, you know, free will. We all we all have it, supposedly. <laughs> that was a weird tangent. Anyways, um... One of the characters that gets more stage time in Love Never Dies than in The Phantom is Meg Giri. Now, she and Madame Giri are both in Love Never Dies. I'd say Madame Giri is probably on stage for about the same amount of time as in The Phantom. In The Phantom, Meg was a fellow dancer and a friend of Christine's. Madame Giri, who is Meg's mother, I believe, uh, was the ballet mistress, which means she kind of kept the dancers in line at the opera house, much like a choreographer. My knowledge of the world of dance and ballet is very limited, so that interpretation might not be 100% correct, but that's kind of what I gathered. In Love Never Dies, the Jiri's work at the Coney Island attraction that's run by Eric, who sometimes goes by the moniker of Mr. Y in the show. Why Mr. Y? I don't know. Maybe they were trying to say, why Mr. Y is actually Eric, and can you figure it out? But it was kind of dumb because they referred to him as Mr. Y like twice, and then it gets dropped and never mentioned again. So I was kind of like, why did they do that? Get it? Why did they do that? Ha ha. Now, Madame Jerry's character in Love Never Dies, like Eric, is quite different from in The Phantom, at least I found. Obviously, or sorry, it's, it's quite different than Raoul's, like like Raoul's. Actually, Eric's kind of different too. All the characters are freaking different in the show, except maybe Christine. She's kind of similar. But, um... Madame Jury is a little bit different. In The Phantom, she was like, ah, oh, there's a phantom in the opera, but I can't really tell you about it. Whereas in the show, she was like, let me tell you everything about everything kind of thing. Like, she was the one that basically explained the backstory between these two things. And um, in Love Never Dies, Meg has a role that's more than just asking, you know, oh my god, Christine, where have you been? Oh, Christine, you sang so beautifully. Like, in The Phantom of the Opera, she didn't really do anything other than praise Christine. Or just, like, say, oh my god, there's a phantom. Ah! You know, but they sang it and it sounded better than that. So, in Love Never Dies, Meg is working on a song slash performance, and she's hoping that Eric will notice this performance and get her top billing for one of the shows. And Madame Jerry is in a kind of choreographer role, you know, helping the dancers and the performers and all that kind of stuff. So it's kind of similar work-wise although less focused on ballet in Live Never Dies than in The Phantom. Now, if you're wondering how Eric got to Coney Island, Love Never Dies explains it that Meg and Madame Jerry basically smuggled Eric into a crate on a ship so he could escape to America. 
And when he got to New York, he then eventually set up a circus slash freak show type of thing on Coney Island, and the Jerry's started working at it with him. They kind of implied that the Jerry's had something to do with Eric's downfall back in Paris, and that, you know, helping him escape and come to America is their way of relieving their guilty conscience. And, but I don't know, I just, that part was really hard for me to grasp my head around because everybody was kind of after him by the end of the fandom, aside from Christine. So I don't really know why they feel so guilty, but I guess it's a way to kind of get these characters in both shows and help thread the narrative between the two stories. Now, the big reveal in Love Never Dies is that at some point, before she comes to Coney Island, Eric and Christine had a sexual relationship or a one-night stand or something like that. Now, after the Phantom, it's implied Eric has vanished and Christine doesn't see him until Love Never Dies. So, in the timeline of the Phantom, any kind of sexual relationship implied, because obviously this is a stage musical, so you're going to get a song and dance about it instead, could only be between one of two scenes. Because if you think about it, in the Phantom of the Opera, Eric and Christine really only interact face-to-face twice. First is when Christine and Eric go down to his lair in Act 1 during the songs The Phantom of the Opera and Music of the Night. This is the first time she meets Eric face-to-face or face-to-half-face, half-mask for the first time. She had been taking singing lessons from the Angel of Music or whatever at you know, some point beforehand, but it's never implied that, you know, she's seen him, she just hears him, and she sings, you know, my father spoke of an angel of music, and now I can sense that he's here, and then after she sings Think of Me, they meet, and they go down. Now, for me, them getting together in the scene does not make any sense story-wise, because the other time they interact alone is during Act 2 and the song Past the Point of No Return. Now, this song is a song Eric writes for his opera, Don Juan Triumphant, and he makes Christine sing it. It's a song for a show within a show, which happens a lot in this musical since it takes place at an opera house. So within this show within a show, Christine is supposed to be singing it with opera singer Ubaldo Piangi, but Piangi, unbeknownst to Christine or anyone else at the time, is dead, and she's actually singing it with Eric and his guys. She soon realizes what's happening, and Eric and her go down to his lair once more. Now, the more I try to analyze these shows, the more melodramatic they sound, and I I know this is a really stupid point to be focusing on, but my point is Past Point and No Return is a song about lust and temptation. It's a song about sex. Obviously, when I was 10, that kind of flew over my head. I thought Eric just wanted Christine to be his friend and hang out with and sing together. But the song is basically about, you know, if we don't focus on the Don Juan triumphant aspect, but that part also kind of reiterates the same thing within that story. Um, It's about whether Christine will follow her lust and desire and be with Eric, or if she's going to stay with Raul, who's not perfect, but definitely more safe and the healthier choice of the, the two men, at least in this musical. Now, during the song, in The Phantom, Raul has Madame Giri show him how he can get to Eric's lair, and he sets out to rescue Christine. He soon catches up to them, and to me, I'm just saying it just doesn't seem like anything sexual or romantic happened between the Phantom and Christine. I think it shows, the song shows, the Phantom Eric wants that to happen, and Christine's kind of tempted, but, like, 
I think the the most action that happens is maybe Eric caresses Christine's cheek. So I guess if that's supposed to show a sex scene, that's it. But I just, I, I don't know. I just didn't think anything actually happened. I think it was more like, this is our desire kind of thing. And will we give in to it? So it doesn't make sense that if they hooked up in Act 1 after the Phantom of the Opera, Music of the Night kind of thing happened, why there would be a scene about giving into your desires if you've already given into your sexual desires kind of thing. You know what I'm saying? So anyways, Ro comes in, saves the day, but not really. So, you know, because basically Christine has to save the day. I'm going to go into the end of the Phantom at a later point. But I'm just saying, so according to Love Never Dies, um, Christine and Eric hooked up, but I just don't think they hooked up within the Phantom of the Opera timeline. I think they must have hooked up at some point, maybe before he escaped, they meet up or something, and she and him hook up. I don't, I don't know. I'm focusing on this, and the more I think about it, the more I'm like, why am I focusing on this? The very beginning, I was like, suspension of disbelief, everybody. So, yeah, just completely suspend your disbelief. At some point, they hooked up. So, back to Love Never Dies. Christine Raoul and Gavrat get to Coney Island, and the first night Raoul is sent to meet Mr. Hammerstein, who hadn't been present when their ship landed, despite correspondence saying other words, and Raoul was all like, this is ridiculous, blah 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 blah, I'm gonna go talk to him, da 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 So when Raoul is gone, Eric comes to Christine while Gavrat is sleeping. Now, in The Phantom of the Opera, the interactions between Eric and Christine are kind of dark and mysterious, and you don't really know what's going on. And Love Never Dies are real, real melodramatic. Dear God, in Love Never Dies, Eric, I mean, Eric kind of acts this way in the fandom, but even more so in Love Never Dies. He acts like a cross between an emo kid and a nice guy. So, ugh, to all of that. You know, the whole, like, nobody understands me, I'm all alone in darkness. Also, like, why don't you love me, blah, barf. So, okay, now you might be thinking to yourself, Wait a second. Love Never Dies takes place ten years after the events in the Phantom of the Opera, supposedly. And Gavrat is ten years old. Does that mean, yep, Gavrat is actually Eric's son. Now, they play this in this musical like it's a big shocking reveal at the end of Act 1. But as soon as they mention Eric and Christine hooking up at some point, I was like, yep, Gavrat's Eric's son. Um, because throughout the friggin' first act of the musical, Gavrat keeps mentioning how he likes, he's really interested in Coney Island, and he likes dark and mysterious stuff, and all sorts of things, and then in one scene, Eric hears Gavrat play a song on the piano, and from this haunting melody, Eric realizes that only his son could play such haunting music, and after confronting Christine, she confesses that yes, Eric is the real baby daddy of Gavrat. And Eric makes Christine promise she won't ever reveal to Gavrat the truth that Eric is actually his dad. Now, I don't want to get into a whole spiel of nature versus nurture. But while I feel like some people have natural talents, I don't feel like the talents a person has is necessarily related to genetics or parentage. Most likely, Gavrat grew up taking piano lessons and got good from practicing because his mother is a singer and she probably exposed him to music and the arts. I don't think that 
being biologically Eric's son means he was predisposed to being a musical genius or having a fascination with the dark and unknown and all of that. But because he's really Eric and Christine's son, that's why he's so good at music and likes spooky things. So, yeah, that was a really predictable kind of plot line. I mean, it's interesting, but, you know, I definitely didn't, wasn't like, oh my god, I'm shocked, I'm so shocked, how how could this have happened? Because, like, yeah, the doy. The part of Love Never Dies I kind of found the most skeezy is at the start of Act 2. Now, at the start of Act 2, Raul has been drinking at a bar because he just drinks and gets angry, that's his only character traits in the show, and then Eric appears. And every time, like, when Eric appears in front of Christine, you think it's going to be this, like, ooh, sort of. But it's sort of like, hey, remember me? And same thing with, like, Raul. Like, I thought they were, like, I don't know. They do a song. The song's okay. The song's called Devil Take Behind Most, which I've never heard that term in my life. Apparently, hindmost is a term, but I kind of kept making up stupid versions in my, in my head that rhymed, like, Devil take the hind roast and devil take the hind toast. So, I I don't know. It, may, it must have been something people said back in 1905. Not a term we use today. But Eric confronts Raul and they make a wager. So Christine's supposed to sing the song that Eric wrote for her the next night or that night. They make this wager that if Christine sings the song, Christine... And Gavrat stay in Coney Island with Eric, and Roe has to go back to Paris alone. If she doesn't sing the song, Christine, Gavrat, and Raoul can return back to Paris, and Eric will never bother them again. Now, what's frustrating is Christine isn't told about this wager, which gives her character even less agency than in The Phantom, and she didn't have a ton of agency in that musical. And if you're wondering what agency is, it's basically when a character makes choices that affect the plot of the musical, or a story, because agency happens for characters in all sorts of narrative fiction, instead of having the plot happen to the character without them making any choice. Now, agency isn't necessarily a good or bad thing, and most characters aren't going to have all of one, you know, at least main characters. If you're a side character, you're probably not going to have a lot of agency, because your point is just to support the story, not to really make major decisions in it, just to kind of be a side character. Um... So it's not a good thing or a bad thing either way, but if a character has little or no agency, especially a main character, they're going to be pretty boring. Because it's just like, oh no, this thing happened, now I have to react to it. Oh no, this other thing happened, now I have to react to it. Like in The Phantom, The, the Phantom of the Opera, Meg Jerry has like no agency, because she basically just reacts to everything. I think the, the most agency she has is at the beginning, when she tells the theater directors, that Christine can sing this song, so the agency she has isn't even for herself, it's for another character. But moving on, I just want to say that, you know, the point of this whole agency is to point out that Christine isn't really a great, well-written character in The Phantom, and she wasn't really a great, well-written character in the novel, and that has to do with patriarchy and all sorts of stuff like that. There isn't going to be a thesis paper with a title like Feminism in Theater, an in-depth character analysis of Christine Daae. You know, unless it's to point out the male gaze in theater and how that creates female characters who have little or no agency and are reliant on male characters for their development. 
So Christine spends a lot of time in the Phantom, just kind of scared or wanting to hide, not being sure what to do. Now, at the end of the musical, she gets to make a choice. But the choice isn't really a great choice. Because throughout most of the Phantom, she doesn't really make her own choices. She kind of tries, but, you know, even, like, in the masquerade scene, she's like, Raul, let's keep our engagement secret. And he's like, no, why would we do that? And she's like, no, we have to keep it a secret. And he's like, it's an engagement, not a crime. What are you talking about, Christine? You're being so silly because you're a woman. Um, so, yeah, she doesn't really get to make a lot of her own choices until the end of the musical when Raul is captured by the Phantom. And the Phantom basically tells Christine, you can be with me and Raul goes and lives or you can reject me and I kill Raul. So make your choice. Now, that is, I'm going to say for the record, uh, some really toxic and manipulative behavior from Eric. That's not a great choice she gets to make. And one of the things I really hate about Phantom fandom is there's a lot of people who really want to ship Christine and Eric together. And I was kind of that way when I was 10 because I was fucking 10 years old. But as an adult, I just want to point out that Eric is not a great dude. He killed two guys for sure. He captured and kidnapped Christine several times. You know, you could say maybe she was tempted, but I would say she was very much coerced uh, to going down into his lair with him. He didn't really give her much of a choice in that. You know, she's sort of thrusted. Like I said, she doesn't really get to make a lot of her own choices, but he kills a lot of people. He captures people. And you can be like, yeah, people were mean to him because of something he couldn't control because he was disfigured which they don't really get into how or why he was disfigured in the Phantom. I think in the novel they might kind of go into that. I can't really remember. But that also doesn't make the excuse that you can abuse people. So, Phantom, Eric, he's not really the best dude. And Christine doesn't really have a great choice to make at the end of that musical. The choice of, you know... You can be with somebody you don't really want to be with and the person you love lives, or you can reject this person you don't want to be with and the person you love dies. It's a fucking awful choice to have to make. But the point is, she knew this was the choice she had to make. She was told, this is your choice. This is what you get to do. In Love Never Dies, neither Eric or Christine tell her about the wager they made. Eric actually kind of tells Christine that if she sings this song, they're over and she can move on and her the debt will be repaid and everything will be great. So she's being lied to both directly and indirectly. In Love Never Dies, uh, Raul also kind of does this thing where like five minutes before she's supposed to go on stage and sing the song that he's like, Honey, why don't we just leave right now for Paris and forget this place? For, forget all about this and we can just go on and live our lives. But of course that doesn't fucking work because he's being very dishonest and uh, lying by omitting. And so she sings the song, which is the title song Love Never Dies. And Raoul sings away defeated, but you know, it's kind of your own fault for making this wager and for not being honest with what happened. You know, if you're withholding information for some, from somebody and expecting them to make a choice without said information, you can't expect them to make an informed decision.
let's get back to the character Meg for a minute. So in Love Never Dies, Meg's been working on the song and dance routine, and she's been hoping Eric will see it and give her top billing for the big show, the one Christine's going to be singing at. But of course, Christine Daae is the more famous of the two, and for her once-in-a-lifetime, one-night-only performance, she gets top billing. And Meg is upset she won't get her big break. But this, to me, just didn't make any sense, because I was like, why is this, like, the one time Meg can do this song? Like, why can't she be like, oh, Christine's going to do this song this week, and next week I'll do my bathing beauty routine? Like, it's kind of like if you're a musician and you get a chance to perform at your city's top music venue, and you've been working on this song for a while, and then the venue says, oh, yeah, Beyonce is going to be playing that night at the same venue, and you're going to be like the opening act. Are you going to be surprised Beyonce is the headliner? No, because it's fucking Beyonce, especially if it's like the last time she's ever performing in concert. You what like what I don't understand the logic that logic in the show. So in Love Never Dies, they really try to establish this rivalry between Meg and Christine. But I don't get it. I don't believe it. Because in the Phantom of the Opera, Meg's seen as being very supportive of Christine. And maybe Meg's been spending the last ten years stewing with jealousy over the aria she suggested Christine sings in the Phantom of the Opera. But Christine didn't replace Meg in that show. She replaced Carlotta. And Meg didn't say, oh, I'll sing it. She said, oh, maybe Christine could sing it. She's been taking voice lessons. She's doing so good. So, and Love Never Dies, they try to establish this whole rivalry. Now, the rivalry between Eric and Raul, yeah, totally get it. The two guys hate each other, for sure. You know that. Meg and Christine, it's like they haven't seen each other for 10 years. I don't fucking get it. I don't fucking get why all of a sudden Meg's, like, so jealous of something that happened 10 years ago and jealous that Christine's coming back for this show. Like, she knew Christine was coming back. She knew it was happening. Like, what? Just, really frustrating. I also want to point out that in Love Never Dies, it's not, Christine doesn't seem to be, like, she's not very much different. She doesn't really get a lot of agency throughout this musical like she did in The Phantom. Like I said, she's probably got less. But I don't get the impression in this musical that she's like, wow, I'm so glad I'm at Coney Island and I can't wait to sing here forever and I'm going to totally take over Meg's spot on stage. Like, they they really try to set up that, like, Christine doesn't really want to be here. She's really kind of unsure, but she's here because her husband's had some gambling debts and they want to pay him off and she knows if she sings this one song for this one night performance... All their debts will go away. It'll be fine. So why Meg is jealous, I still don't fucking get it. But after Christine's song, which for the actual song itself was okay, but in my opinion, it wasn't really the best Christine song in the Phantom canon, Christine notices Gavrot is missing. So she and Eric realize that Meg's kidnapped Gavrot, and they rush off to find the two of them. And they find them at the pier, and they're worried that Meg's going to push Gavrot into the ocean, but she doesn't. Like, it kind of, they kind of set this up like, oh my god, Meg's gonna kill this kid. But she doesn't. She's just like, here you go, it's fine. But then she pulls out a gun. And I just want to point out, too, that uh, Raul's also here, but he doesn't say anything. He just kind of looks in horror at everything that's happening. But she pulls out this gun, and it looks like she's gonna use it on herself, and she does a spiel about how she hasn't been appreciated, and, you know, when's it gonna be her turn to be on stage and to be the famous, you know, all, all that kind of the whole thing. And Eric talks her down, and he apologizes for ignoring her and her talent. He grabs the gun from her, 
or tries to, and they struggle, and she pulls the trigger, missing Eric and hitting Christine. Eric rushes over to Christine while she's dying. Christine tells Gavrat that Eric is really his father, so she goes back on her, her word. Then Eric leaves so Raul can hold Christine as she dies and end musical. So that's Love Never Dies. Now, I talked about this for a while, so you might be thinking that this is the worst thing I've ever seen, but like I said, I still hated Shut the Mod Musical more. Check out episode for three for that one. I didn't finish Love Never Dies and think, why did I waste my time watching this? But I did think, uh, I don't think I need to see that one again. There were a few songs I liked, but not many that stood out. And usually when I listen to a musical for the first time, I'm off trying to listen to the songs for the next straight month, for the next month straight. You know, I didn't have the desire to do that with Love Never Dies. One thing that was really spectacular in the show were the sets and the costumes. But, you know, for Andrew Lloyd Webber musicals, they don't really skimp on that department. And I thought the choreography for some of the numbers with the Coney Island performers were really great. But the story and the characters fell flat for me, despite being an interesting concept. And while I like costumes and sets and choreography and, you know, pretty songs, if a musical story and characters aren't compelling to me, then I lose interest. That's one of the reasons why Cats is one of my least favorite musicals, because there isn't really any characters, there's no story. And I know the movie kind of tries to put a story in, from what I understand, but I haven't seen the movie, so and I probably won't because I don't want to be horrified for the rest of my life. I have seen the stage production of Cats, so I do know that. Um, you know, and this is just my opinion on Love Never Dies. There's likely people who did find the story to be compelling and interesting, but for me, the plot was a bit too fanficy for me. And I don't want to go into a discussion about fanfic because I think fanfic can serve as an important tool for fans to connect to a work of fiction, whether that's a musical, a book, a movie, a TV series, a video game, whatnot. Fanfic can also help um, represent or help an underrepresented community, such as the LGBT plus community, develop stories and characters they can connect to more so than in the original source. And if you want to know more about that, definitely check out Queer Coding for that topic. Um, you know, and if, you, if you're a writer or, you know, you're interested in the arts and that sort of stuff and you want to write a story, then fanfic is an easy way to do that because you don't have to develop new characters. You just have to create new situations for those characters to be in. And it's kind of good writing practice. And there's a lot of writers who've written fanfic. I can either confirm or deny that I've written fanfic. But the thing is, fanfic doesn't have to become a whole thing on its own. Case in point, Fifty Shades of Grey started as Twilight fanfic, and I don't think we really needed Fifty Shades of Grey. No offense, but I don't think any is taken because garbage. Now, I know Love Never Dies is based on a novel, but if the musical is at all similar to the source material, then the source material is quite fanficy. And I say it's fanficy because they basically had to completely rewrite Raoul to be a different character in order for it to make more sense for Christine and Eric to be romantically compatible in Love Never Dies. And the story of Love Never Dies, I think, would be better if it wasn't related to the characters of the Phantom of the Opera. You know, like I said, the concept's interesting. There's a mysterious man who runs a show in Coney Island. He might be disfigured in some way, or different or some way, that makes him an outsider to society. He gets a performer he once knew to come perform in a show. Maybe this person can be a dancer or an acrobat or something else rather than a singer. But she's married with a kid, and we find out that she and this Coney Island circus owner person had an affair years ago, and unbeknownst to her husband, and husband, their son might not be his. And she has a rivalry with another performer that she once knew. Okay. 
That still sounds pretty cheesy and melodramatic, so maybe this was the best way to tell the story with these characters, but they're certainly not the same characters as in The Phantom. I'm glad I got the chance to see Love Never Dies, but I'm also very glad that I got to see it for free. If I'd paid $100 for a ticket, I might have been more disappointed by the show. I mean, I think I paid $30 to see Shut the Mod Musical, and I'm still disappointed with that. I don't regret watching this musical on YouTube. You know, I don't want to be so precious with shows that I like. You know, even something that has a special place in my memories because it was the first show that I saw, like The Phantom, to become one of those, you know, nobody can touch this precious show that I like and nobody can do this because that's a really toxic attitude to have. I find sometimes, especially with musicals, because musicals get new adaptations done sometimes, there's new cast recordings, different revivals, different versions, and some people get on the whole... The Broadway cast is the best cast and nobody can touch. No, the London cast is the best. No, the revival cast is the... And it becomes this whole thing. And it's just like, I, I get if you, you're used to one cast recording more than another, but everybody else is going to have their own interpretation for this show. So you can't really put it on as this is the definitive version of the show and nobody else can touch it. Because if that's the case, then there's only going to be a few few people out of billions who will ever get to see that show and it's not really fair to do that. That's why I think movie versions and film stage versions especially because you get to see how the choreographer and the co choreography and the costumes and the sets and all that are done. It's really interesting and I think it's a really great thing that they film this because people who might not get to see the show now get to see the show. I don't feel like I could highly recommend it but, you know, if you wanted to rent it, I'm sure it's only going to be a few dollars. And if you like The Phantom, just know it's quite different. But the show overall just didn't strike the right chord with me. It's not my favorite Andrew Lloyd Webber musical. Still might like a little bit better than Cats. Alright, so that's it for this episode. Thanks for tuning in. Remember to go to TakeMeToTheWorld.com to find all the resources for this episode and to listen to past episodes. Hope you guys enjoy your day.